Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. All right, we are in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, so if you have your bulletins, you can follow along there. If you uh, have the Bible app, and maybe that's how you follow along to the messages, uh, you can go to the events section and uh, under events, uh, or go to the menu and then go to events and you'll see um, uh, our message notes there and you can follow along. We are in a series called The Master's Plan and we've been going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. Last week uh, we wrapped up chapter 1 and we looked at uh, Paul's prayer for us and Paul had this very specific prayer for the church at Ephesus, but also by virtue of that, a prayer for us. And he prayed that we would know God in the power of his resurrection. We took hold of those words in Romans chapter 8 that says, The Spirit of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, now lives in us. The Spirit of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, now lives in us. And so today we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2. By way of review, Ephesians is written by whom? Paul. It's written by Paul. Where is Paul while he's reading, while he's writing this letter? He's in prison. He is in prison. He had spent time earlier in his life in Ephesus. He spent about three years there on his uh, on one of his missionary journeys, and now uh, while in prison, he is writing back to these followers in Ephesus. He's writing to explain to them the glory, the beauty of the gospel. How does our life fit into God's master plan, and how do we live out this master plan in our relationships? So there's two sections of the book of Ephesians. There is a section uh, the first section is three chapters long. We're in chapter 2 this morning, and we're exploring the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. After the first three chapters of Ephesians, uh, there's a word that most translations use at the beginning of chapter 4, and it's the word, therefore. And what Paul does is he takes this foundational truth of the gospel, and he says, here's the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. Now, because we understand the gospel, because we embrace it, this is now how it shows up in our lives. And so chapter 4, 5, and 6 will be the practical application of what the gospel looks like in our lives. How does it show up in our lives as parents? How does it show up in our lives as employers or employees? How does it show up in our relationship between our spouses? Because we understand this, if the gospel does not impact your relationships, you're living an incomplete version of the gospel. You look, at, uh, you look out throughout the four books of the gospels and when the different writers would write the accounts of Jesus talking to uh, different people, and whenever Jesus encountered someone, the beautiful thing is he met them where they were, but they were immediately changed afterwards. Their relationships changed. I love the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus is uh, uh, looking to see the Savior. The Bible talks about how he's short in stature, and so he climbs up into a tree because there's such a crowd following Jesus, and in the moment where Jesus passes by, Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree, and he identifies him by name, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. 
He has a meal at Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus is so moved by his interaction with Jesus, the gospel takes a hold of Zacchaeus so much, and the evidence of that is what? Zacchaeus' repentance. Zacchaeus says, oh my goodness, I've been living a life that is inconsistent with what the gospel is. And so he goes and he changes his life. And so Paul, uh, writing the book of Ephesians, writing this letter to Ephesus, says this, where is the evidence of your faith? I see you on Sunday morning. What does Monday through Friday look like? Yeah. Where does it show up in your life? When you have an argument with your spouse, where's the evidence of the gospel? When you have an ethical dilemma at work, where is the evidence of the gospel? When you are in life's most difficult moments, where is the evidence of the gospel? And so this study through Ephesians is going to help us understand the gospel story, but really how it also should reshape every part of our life. So today's portion, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to unpack this word, reconciliation. Everybody say that word, reconciliation. So what is Reconciliation. If you're following in our notes today, reconciliation is the restoration of relationship between two parties who were at odds. So this is the restoration of relationship. Enemies uh, are now friends. Family who are once alienated are now restored. What was lost is now brought together. You know, the Hebrews have a word for peace, and it's the word shalom. And in that word shalom is the idea of wholeness, uh, completeness, oneness. So we could say that reconciliation is the, is the shalom of relationships, the, the restoration, the bringing together things that were once at odds. And so Paul begins with this premise in Ephesians 2 that there is a need for reconciliation. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, we'll begin there this morning. It says this, As for you... You were, what's that next word? You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Go back to verse 1 again. He says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So Paul is writing to believers, and he's painting this picture of what our life was like before Christ, and what has happened after Christ. So before Christ, we were dead. He's saying that we were, uh, we were, we were in a position without life. We were dread, dead in our trespasses and sins. When Paul writes the Roman church, he puts it this way. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world, right? Genesis chapter 3, we know the story. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they just start blaming everyone, right? There's a moment where they fail and Eve said, well, the husband you gave me. And then Adam said, well, you gave him to me. You gave her to me, Lord. 
And of course, there was this moment where sin entered the world. So Rome, uh, Paul is addressing the Roman church, and he says it this way. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. So Adam's sin brought what? And death spread to whom? Everyone. For everyone sinned. So we are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is quite the predicament. We are dead. We are the opposite of what life is. And to be fair, this is the opposite of who Jesus is. Jesus said he was, remember on Easter we talked about the conversation he had with Thomas, and, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's the opposite of who Jesus is. It's also the opposite of what Jesus promised. Earlier in, that, in, in the book of John, in John chapter 10, he's having this discussion about shepherd and the good shepherd. He says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I am come that you might have life. So we were dead in our trespasses and sin, which is the opposite of who Jesus is and the opposite of what he promises. We were dead. Now what's hard for us is, is, is Paul is painting this picture that we started in death and we come to life in Jesus Christ. Where for most of our, uh, our living world, we identify life and one day we die. So it's a little bit on his head, this world, this kingdom that Paul is describing. And so he paints this picture of what our lives are like before Christ. We were dead. There is no life. Uh, we were dead both in our trespasses and our sins. It's not the only way he describes our life, though. I think what's interesting is in the New Testament, there are a lot of ways to paint the picture of what our lives look like before Christ. Paul describes it as us being blind in 2 Corinthians. Not only are we blind, he says we're a slave to sin. He says we're lovers of darkness and under the power of darkness. He says that we're sick, that we're lost. Uh, we'll see next week. <clears throat> we're going to go through the next uh, 10 or 12 verses of Ephesians next, uh, chapter 2 next week. He calls us aliens, foreigners, strangers. So all these words describe the distance between where we are and where God is. We were dead. We were sick. We were foreigners. We were blind. We were slaves to sin. And so Paul reminds us we were dead, very specifically though, in your transgressions and sins. Now these are deep, huge, doctrinal, biblical words of what our distance between us and God is marked by. Number one, transgressions. This means that there is a line that we have crossed where we've challenged God's boundaries. That word sin identifies us as missing the mark of God's perfect standards. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that we are in need of reconciliation for several reasons because we have crossed a line, we have challenged God's boundaries, and we have missed the mark, the perfect standard of God. If you were to picture a target and you were to picture holiness as the bullseye in the middle of the target, Paul is painting a picture that we have missed the mark, that we've challenged God's boundaries, that we've crossed a line. And so because of that, we are dead. 
Now, what's interesting is as soon as he reminds us of that, he goes on further and says this in verse 3. As soon as he reminds us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 3, he says, all of us also lived, lived among them at one time. Paul immediately reminds us that the status that we have as followers of Christ, that we are dead, is in the past tense. It's what used to be. It no longer exists. At one time, we lived that way, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. You think about, you think about the picture that Paul is using, that we were dead. At one time, we lived this way. How many of you understand, as followers of Christ, we no longer are living that way? Coffins are appropriate for dead people. Right? They're appropriate. When someone passes away, you make preparations and, and you might have a coffin. You might choose to, um, there's many options when it comes to how we say goodbye to our loved ones. But they're appropriate resting spaces only for those who have passed. Which is why when you're watching TV or you're watching a movie and there is a scene where someone is trapped inside a coffin who is alive. Now some of you are shaking your head. You can. That's a scary thing, right? Because a coffin's not appropriate for someone who's living. Paul is trying to remind us, man, we, we, uh, we were dead in trespasses and sins. And all of us have lived among them at one time. But that is past tense. We no longer live with the dead. We're no longer slaves to our sins. We no longer live that way because of God and his rich mercy. We'll get there in verse 4. I want you to have that word picture with you that coffins are appropriate for dead people. But for those of us who are alive in Christ Jesus... It's as silly as us carrying or bringing our coffin everywhere we go. And when someone says, well, why, why do you have your, is that, is that a coffin that you're, you're bringing with you? Yeah, well, just in case I need it. Just in case I need to get comfortable. Just in case I need a nap. That's where I like to rest. It's silly, it's a little morbid, it's a little disturbing. And what Paul is asking us to consider, as silly and as morbid and as disturbing as that mental picture of us is carrying a, co a coffin with us through, through everyday life, Paul says spiritually, we have no need of that coffin anymore because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. At one time we lived, but we no longer are there. Paul is reminding us what it's like before Christ and after Christ. In the picture of what our lives look like before Christ, it's not flattering. It's difficult to look at. It's difficult to embrace. But the only way to recognize and truly understand the extraordinary nature of God's grace is to come face to face with the depth and depravity of our own sin. We are broken. We are sinful. 
We have no claims we can make in our life. We have no merit in our life. And there is a definite need for reconciliation. So Paul then describes to us how reconciliation comes. And make no mistake, reconciliations begin with God, not ourselves. Paul paints this picture in the first three uh, verses of what our lives look like before Christ. And he says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And then we get to verse 4, praise God, but God, but because of his great love, I should say, for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Can we read those two verses together? Ready, begin. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Oh, church, reconciliation starts with God. It doesn't start with us, but it starts with him because of his great love for us. And he is reconciling us to himself because of he's rich in mercy, because he's great in love. In fact, every reason for God's mercy and love is found in him. What does that mean? That means the very character of God means he's rich in mercy and in love. We give him no reason to love us, yet in the greatness of his love, he loves us with that great love anyway. It defines who he is. God is merciful and God is love. In Exodus 33, there's this conversation between Moses and God. And, and, and Moses and God are having this exchange of what it looks like to have the people leave Egypt. What does the Exodus look like? And at one point, Moses has a bold request in Exodus 33 and verse 18. Moses says to God, now show me your glory. And in response to that request, this is how God responds. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Look at how God describes himself and how he identifies himself. Goodness, mercy, compassion. This is who God is, and so it makes no surprise to us that God, who is rich in mercy and great in love, would see to it that we would have a way to restore our relationship with him. Even the story of Exodus is the picture of reconciliation. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Aren't you glad God's love doesn't begin when we become lovable? That'd be a long wait for some of y'all. How many of you are sitting, how many, how many of you are lovable this morning? How many of you know you're sitting next to someone? It would take a long while before. Don't raise your hands. Aren't you glad God's love doesn't begin when we become lovable? 
Yeah. That's a huge, huge reality we need to embrace. Uh, Paul says it this way in Romans. God demonstrates his love toward us in that why we were lovable. Now, in that while we were still sinners, when we were separated from God, when we had the, uh, the depth and depravity of our own sin, this is when God's love decides to show up. It's in his love. He's rich in mercy. He's great in love. John says it this way, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. That's when God loves shows up is when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were yet sinners, when we were in this condition, away from God, the opposite of life, when we had this distance between God and us, this is when God's love shows up and we pass from death to life. You see, God shared in our debt so that we could share in his resurrection life. The old man is now crucified. We are now new creations in Jesus with all things being passed away and all things becoming new. Paul says it this way in Corinthians, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. As we go through this uh, chapter verse by verse, we're going to see the beautiful result of reconciliation. We're going to see what, where God's love shows up in our life and we're reconciled to him. What does it mean to be reconciled to one another? In fact, next week when we dive into it, we're going to look at two people groups who were diametrically opposed, two cultures that had no business getting along, two cultures that had every reason to have polar opposites, to have uh, to have nothing in common, and yet by the grace of God, they are now reconciled to one another because they've been reconciled to God. But for today, I want you to see the gift of God's reconciliation. What does God's reconciliation gift us? Verse 6, as we continue, says this, God raised us up with Christ, seated us up with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Boy, what happens when God's love rescues us? What happens when we are restored? What are the gifts of reconciliation? Well, you can see there in verse 6, he says, well, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us up with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And then in verse uh, 7 at the end, he says this, He has expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What a glorious picture that we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. You see, God's reconciliation gives us citizenship in heaven. This is the position of the Christian. We now have a new place for living, a new arena of existence. We're not those who dwell on the earth, but are, we, we dwell for a time, but our citizenship is in heaven. Paul says it this way in Philippians, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our Savior. You see the wonderful contrast between verses 1, 2, and 3 and now verse 6 and 7. You see the wonderful contrast of our life before Christ. He says you were dead 
and trespasses and sins. You were not worthy to be in the same space as Jesus. You had this uh, distance between you. But for the love of God who is rich in mercy and great in love, God's love shows up. And now because of the reconciliation that God has bought us on the cross, we now are citizens of heaven. Paul's compelled here to add that this is the work of God's grace in no way involving man's merit. Oh, the incomparable riches of his grace. What does God choose to do with this? Verse 7, he expresses it in his kindness to us. The tragedy of Christianity is we look at grace, God's grace, as an entry point, rather where we live every day until glory. I want you to think about the tragedy of Christianity is that we view God's grace as an entry point rather than where we live every day until glory. The grace of God is something that he overflows with. And no matter the demands that ever could be made on that grace, he is still rich in grace. And it never runs out. And there remains incredible riches at his disposal as he chooses to express in it his kindness to us. What does it look like to treat God's grace as an entry point? That means at the moment where we put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus, we take claim of God's grace. And we embrace it in our lives. And we say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we go through our lives and we leave that grace behind for some reason. And we use it as an entry point to enter this exclusive club of followers of Jesus Christ. This exclusive members only club. And we have this jacket that we wear and we go to church on Sundays and we experience the grace of God at the moment of salvation and yet for some reason we insist on living the rest of our lives in our own strength. And as soon as Monday goes awry, which could happen first thing Monday morning, as soon as our coffee order isn't just right, as soon as someone cuts you off on Garden Valley going to work, As soon as Lowe's runs out of exactly what you're looking for, the grace of God disappears, and it dissipates. And what was good for salvation, what was good for heaven, what was good for that moment where we put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus, for for some reason we no longer live in that place anymore. Boy, what would it look like To live in the grace of God every single day. So here's the thing. I think it's actually possible. By the grace of God, I think it's possible to live in that space on a daily basis. What does Paul tell the church at Galatians? He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It is a daily thing that Christ's Spirit lives in you. That verse we repeated a dozen times last week in Romans that says this, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. So I believe there's this way for us to live in the grace of God, not just on the day where we receive Him, but every single day. And what would it look like to be that grateful for God's grace, that thankful for His mercy in our lives, 
every single day. The grace of God, he overflows with it. Paul ends this section of scripture by saying this, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one could boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance. Paul cannot speak of this glorious work God does without reminding us that it is the gift of God given to the undeserving. And if salvation were the accomplishment of man in any way, we would be able to boast out of it. But because of God's plan of salvation, God alone receives, receives the glory. We are his workmanship, verse 10 says. We are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. This is a, a Greek word called poema. In that word is rooted, that word poem, it's, it's, a, it's, it's describing a beautiful masterpiece, a beautiful work of art. I want you to think about that. This is how he describes you. He says, we are God's poema, handiwork, beautiful work of art, created in Christ Jesus. Some of you might have a low opinion of yourself, and you think, man, I don't know what I'm doing in the kingdom of God. I have no gifts. I have no talents. I have nothing. And you know how God describes you? He says, you're God's handiwork. You are his poema. You're a beautiful work of art created in Christ Jesus. Created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is a specific calling in your life, and you are a beautiful masterpiece, a work of art. And there is part of your life God has specifically designed and arranged and prepared in advance, Scripture says, for you to participate in the kingdom of God. For you to bring others to Christ. For you to encourage others. You see, God's love is a transforming love. It meets us right where we are, but when we receive this love, it always takes us where we should be going. This is God's transforming love. You see, the love of God that saves our soul is also the love of God that changes our life. We're going to see more of this in section 2 in a few weeks when we begin chapter 4, 5, and 6. And God's love starts to show up in the way we live our lives. But the beautiful thing is this. God is making us active in good works. And there's so much to be made and to be said of the fact that we are God's handiwork. His beautiful work of art. We are transformed and God's love meets us where we are. But when we receive this love, it should take us where we should be going. The tragedy is that we look at it as an entry point than where we live every single day. I want to give you three questions to think about today as we wrap up. Three questions. Number one, have you come face to face with God's grace? Have you experienced the grace of God? Have you come face to face with your own depravity? Have you recognized in your life that without Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins? Your life has come to a place where you have crossed the line, where you have challenged the boundaries God has set, and you have missed the mark, the perfect standard created by God. Have you come face to face acknowledging the depth of your own sin and receiving the grace of God? Boy, if you're watching online or maybe you're here and you've never put a, 
uh, put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, this is where Paul says it all begins, is recognizing our sin, embracing his grace. If you are a follower of Christ, I would ask you this question honestly. Are you living God's grace daily? Or is that a once-in-a-lifetime thing? Are you living God's grace daily? God's love is this transforming power. It meets us where we are, but when we receive it, it always takes us where we should be going. So where is God's love taking you? Recently, I've been, um, I've been trying to memorize a few verses. And um, so I wanted to memorize the Lord's Prayer. And I started praying that for the last two or three months every, not first thing in the morning, because I couldn't tell you what I do first thing in the morning. It takes me a long time to wake up. You can ask Libby. Um, but near the first thing in the morning, I have this journal, and I've been writing out the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. How many of you felt your, your blood pressure just reduce a little bit as you said or you heard the words of the Lord's Prayer? I've been, re I've been uh, lately trying to memorize um, Psalm 19, and I started with the last few verses because that last verse is just so beautiful. And he says this at the end. He said, may these words of my heart and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What I'm trying to do by doing that is I'm trying to figure out what does it look like to live in God's grace daily because I can tell you when I begin with thinking about his will being done giving thanks for the daily bread asking him to not lead me into temptation but to deliver me from the evil one when it begins when my day begins by saying hallowed be your name and I rest there can I tell you church it helps me walk in that day a little closer to the grace of God so you say, what is it? You're talking in this abstract. What does it look like to live in God's grace daily? Well, I would just say get close to God first thing. And begin that day with just a little bit of scripture that helps center your heart. Maybe some of you need to memorize second, uh, first or second Timothy 1 7, where it says, For God has not given the spirit of fear, but of love, power, and sound mind. And I tell you, if you read that verse and you meditate that verse before you turn on your preferred news channel or before you scroll through social media, you think that might have a different outlook on how you receive information? God has not given me the spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and of sound mind. So I would say this idea of living in God's grace daily is, is centering yourself in the things of God. Um, and then thirdly, where is God's love taking you? You are gifted, you are talented, 
You have been giving resources, talents, expertise. You are God's beautiful work. You are his poema, his handiwork, and you were created long ago before the very foundations of the world, Ephesians 1 reminds us, and you were prepared in advance to be his handiwork. Let's pray as we think about these points to reflect and respond. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Our worship team is going to come forward. They're going to prepare us to lead us in worship but just for a few moments as we reflect and as we respond. Boy, have you come face to face with the grace of God? Have you recognized your own sin and your own depravity? Have you recognized that before God, you were dead in your own trespasses and sins? Boy, this is the moment. Today is the day of salvation. If you're listening to this or if you're Watching this online, I would ask you, have you come face to face with the grace of God? He's waiting for you. He's waiting to restore your life, to provide that reconciliation that brings two parties who were formerly at odds. And here's the thing, before Christ, you were dead. But now you can be made alive in Christ Jesus I'd ask you today to put your trust in him. It's no mistake you're watching this. It's no mistake you're in this service. If you've never come to a place in your life where you put your faith and trust in him, today is that day of salvation. It's the day you recognize that in your own sin, you are dead. In your own sin, you are distanced from God. And the grace of God, which has appeared to all men, has come so that we might know him and the power of his resurrection. And if you're watching this, if you're here today, I'd encourage you to, first of all, reach out to the person that brought you and tell them, man, I'm ready, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. I would be honored to pray with you sometime this week and to give you a couple of gifts that would help you in your Christian walk and so if you're watching or your line or if you're here in the service I'd encourage you to grab a connect card or comment and say I believe in Christ I've given my life to him that kind of public confession helps reinforce that decision and we can walk you through what it means to be a follower of Christ what it means to be baptized into the family of God and then church family are you living God's grace daily or are you trying to do it on your own strength? Are you, are you sprinting through the week only to collapse at the end of it, realizing you've done it in your own strength? The tragedy of our lives is when we view grace as the entry point to a relationship rather, the thing, rather than the thing that actually sustains the relationship. Maybe you need to center your heart on this last question. Where is God's love taking you? God is speaking to you specifically and he has given you desires and passions and talents and expertise and resources and there's something God is asking you to do with your life because you were created in Christ Jesus and you are his handiwork, his poema, his beautiful work, his masterpiece. And part of the way that we reach people in Douglas County and people across the world is by every person fulfilling this part of their life, gifting themselves to God. 
Heavenly Father, as we reflect and as we respond in our own hearts, I pray that today would be significant. I pray that those who need Christ, those who are distanced from him right now, that are hearing the gospel maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time where it actually resonates, Father, that they would have the courage to reach out to those who invited him to church, maybe those who are there watching with online and say, this is the day I'm going to draw a line in the sand and I'm going to say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Would you give them the courage to reach out? Would you give them the courage to get baptized? Would you give them the courage to join a church family where they can partner with other like-minded believers and, and grow in Scripture and grow in connection and relationship? Father, for those of us who need to recommit our daily walk with you, Father, we got Sunday on lockdown. We know what to do on Sundays. We get up and we gather and we worship. But the rest of the week, Lord, I pray that there would be a stirring up of our own hearts to recommit our Mondays and our Tuesdays and our Wednesdays and every day between Sundays to the glory of God, that we would rest in your grace, that we wouldn't just try to do it at our own strength. And Father, for those you are specifically calling to specific service, I pray that you would continue to soften our hearts as we realize, gosh, we are, we are yours and we were created in advance and prepared to do the work of the kingdom. Thank you, Father, for that gift. We love you, Lord. And so, Father, in a few moments, we're going to praise and worship you and we're going to proclaim you as our Messiah. We're going to say you are our blessed Redeemer. You are the rescue. You are our ransom for heaven. And so, Father, we proclaim these truths and we ask you to let our lives be a reflection of the worship we're about to bring. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.